O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious, are to, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of life everlasting. God, of course, blesses his word. I want to speak briefly to you in the remaining minutes that I have for this psalm. Years ago, when I was in campus ministry, we had all kinds of students that, we, that I interacted with up there in the area outside Pittsburgh. And um, Sproul was our theologian in residence at that time. And I remember after I left there and went to Westminster, he wrote a book that was a title that you won't find anymore today, but um, it, it was a book that described the assault of atheism upon the Christians. And what he outlined there was that you and I as believers in God 
are inherently weak, we need to conjure up some idea and create this fictitious person called God because we're weak and we need protection or we want something. We want our world to be better. And he said that as a result of that, um, they accuse us of creating a comfortable God. Well, may I suggest to you that nothing could be further from the truth, that instead of us creating a God that makes us comfortable, what you see in this psalm is David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit describing a God that is, yeah, there are two sides to this, but in the beginning, if you, if you listen carefully to what he describes, this God is anything but make, he, he does anything but make us feel comfortable. I mean, this is, this is bare knuckles frightening when you think about a God who knows everything and you can't hide. And so when you start through, I just want to walk through very quickly. The passage which I just read, look at the first verse. Oh, Yahweh, he says, you have searched me and you know me. Now, remember, this is coming from a man. I don't know if he had already committed the sin with Bathsheba, but whether this was before or after, this would be a tough call to write these words, knowing that God knows every detail of what you've done in secret as well as in public. He says, oh, Yahweh, you have searched me. And, and that word search right there is indicating a scrutiny, an intimacy that is nothing short of terrorizing in one sense. He says, not only have you scrutinized me, you've known me. People do not like to be gazed at. We go to art museums and we gaze at art, pictures of art and great creations from the hands of men and women. But we don't want to be reduced into being an object of somebody's gaze. Women complain about that all the time that men gaze at them because they feel like they have become an object. Well, here's David saying, God, you have, you have searched me intensely, and you know me. And that word, yada, to know, is not just that God intellectually knows something about who David is and where his neighborhood is. He's saying, God, you've examined me, and you know every detail about me. And then he begins to unpack this. And so he, it raises the question, how much does God know? Well, there are two doctrines we embrace for good reason because it's clearly revealed that makes God as the holy God rather unique in the pantheon of idols. He is unique. He is a God who is omniscient and omnipresent, which those fancy terms are simply saying he's everywhere and he knows everything. And because he knows everything, he didn't go to school, he doesn't ever, God never learned a single thing. I mean, think about it. Because if you already know all that is not only actual, you know all that is 
possible. You know all the options. You don't learn it or figure it out. He innately knows it because he's infinite in his knowledge and in his presence. And those two things come together in this psalm. And not in a a, a way that somebody writes in a boring fashion, a thick book that nobody reads of, of systematic theology. He writes it in an intensely personal way. For instance, he goes on to say, let me spell it out. Look at verse 2. You know me when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. He says, you search my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. He's simply saying, look, you know when I sit down in the chair, when I sit in front of the television set, or I sit in a room, or anywhere, you know when I sit down, and you know when I get up. I mean, just an amazing thought. Think about that. He knows you're sitting right there in that chair right now. So he, he knows all these things, but then he adds another word to that. Not just know, you discern. And discerning means God has already sorted it out. Not only does he discern, he said, you know my path, and remember a path is where it's what you leave behind because you've walked it many times. So he knows our heritage. He knows what's behind us. He says, when I lay down, you know it. Then he, verse, the, the next uh, verse three, uh, I'm sorry, verse four, he goes on to say, not only do you observe all my actions and my unsaid thoughts, he says, you know what I am going to say before it is what? Said. <laughs> now somebody raised a question one time, well, if this is true, why bother to pray? I mean, seriously, is prayer the purpose of prayer to inform God or to twist his arm to get him to do something he doesn't want to do, but we want it done because we think it's right? No, prayer is actually the sovereignty of God moving the human heart to turn to Him and say, God, um, you know, I am praying because you tell me to pray the Lord's Prayer, prayers like that, to pray according to your revealed will. So he's saying that you know all my actions, you know what I'm going to say before it's said. So he says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. And it's that one little word altogether. <laughs> Not just 90% of what we know or we ask or what we say before we've even decided we're going to say it. He already knows that. You talk about um omnipresence and omniscience then he goes on to say God you hem me in behind and before and you as Nathan pointed out you lay your hand on me think about that he's not just impersonal where he's in front of you and behind you you can't get away from him you run this way he's in front of you and you bump into him so to speak you try to back up he's right there he's all around you, you can never get away from his presence. You're not just in his presence in this building or in a worship service. You're in his, his presence wherever you are, whenever, what time of day, whatever activity. And he's saying, David says, God, you lay your hand on me. That gets real down and personal. 
Then he brings up the next thing. Not only is he everywhere, he's not just out there. He's not, I'm surrounded by God. I'm bumping up against him all the time. He then goes on to say in verse 6, God is uncomprehensible, which means that when we talk like this, and there are great theologians, uh, Karl Barth was one of them, who said, you, you know, God is so wholly other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, that you can't know really anything about him in one sense. And yet, he, Karl Barth wrote how many massive volumes of systematic theology? I mean, listen, people, he's got, David is saying that you are incomprehensible. So he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. That word wonderful really truly does mean incomprehensible, which means you cannot exhaust in your thinking about God who he is. I put it another way. You ever notice in Revelation 4 that uh, Revelation 4, you, the, the angels who were there, and they're still saying this right now as I'm preaching. Remember the three words they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. <laughs> His eternally exists, he eternally exists, and so he's thrice holy, and they are continually saying that. And I thought when I first read that years ago, I thought, you know, in a sense, wouldn't you kind of get boring, bored with saying the same thing over and over again? And then I look at, the, look at the vision and realize these are angelic beings who are seraphim, who are fiery creatures, who are in the presence of Almighty God. And they are continually saying that and never getting bored. You know why? Because only God is infinite. <laughs> only God is omnipresent. Only He knows everything, always has, always will. Then that means that the guys who are closest to him, these, these, uh, these creatures, these angelic beings, they never get bored because as much as they already know right now and they're continuing the song, there's always a surprise around every corner. How could you get bored with an infinite being? You spend time with a friend, you learn new things about them, the years go by, you learn more about them, you know, a spouse, whatever. Think about God. In a sense, we can get bored with each other. We will never get bored when we see God's face. And that's what those angels are seeing. And David gets a glimpse of that. He says, this is too wonderful for me. Then he goes on to say that... I can't go where God isn't. That's what he's saying in verse 7 and 8. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I get up and try to run away, or he's saying, if I'm like a bird, and a bird, you walk up and the bird takes off, he says, they're getting away from you or danger or whatever. He says, if I had wings and I could fly, I still, wherever I fly to, I am no further away from him than when I took flight. Think about that. He then goes on in verse 11, I need to give up thinking that I can conceal anything from God. Now, of all the atheist arguments, this psalm would have never been penned with those words because that is not comforting. That is terribly intimidating. 
Surely the darkness shall cover me. The light is around me, whether it be night, even the darkness, God, he's saying, it isn't dark to you, you see in the dark. We as kids got scared of things that went bump in the night. God sees everything. What we do in bed, the thoughts we have, the concealed things we may do, God sees, saw it, sees it, will see it. He knows even before we thought it. Then in verse 13, he now turns and he says, God, you see me and you designed me inside my mother's womb. Now, please remember, this was before the invention of ultrasound machines. That medical device had not been invented, and he already knew more than we are discovering with machinery, that he's saying, God, you even knew my, you knew me when I was just a little teeny tiny blip in my mama. I have a doctor that comes to our Sunday school class where, where I'm involved in, a, in ministry, and this guy is a world-class, he's probably the nation's number one medical doctor, taking frozen embryos and placing them into the wombs of Christian women who are married to raise up a child. A child, a, a fertilized egg, that would have been eliminated, they freeze them and then they have a way of creating, taking them out of a frozen state and a woman become pregnant. We had a couple like that live with us. They got two twins today. They're coming back in a few weeks, by the way. He's saying, even that teeny tiny, God, you knew it. He says, you knit me like a beautiful garment. So he turns to the description of the biology that's like a weaving. Then he goes on to say, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Now, I uh, hope you're sitting down. Let this one hit you. My unformed substance in your book. God's got a book. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when yet there was none of them. So even before Mama conceived me, my day, the day I'm going to die was already written in the book. The day you're going to die is in his book. You cannot do anything to change that. And David is saying, good night, man. This, look at this. This is the kind of God we're dealing with. And then he, he turns in an interesting direction. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I have a friend who's got his name on the moon, literally. He was one of the, one of the father-son engineers of the first lunar module. And when they landed on the moon, they put a plaque there and it's still sitting there to this day. So he told me that and I was talking to him one day and, and he said to me, you know, he said, I took the, the sand of the sea and I tried to figure out mathematically how many grains of sand would that be? <laughs> Don't even ask me. That's why his name's on the moon and mine isn't. I, but just amazing to the power of what? So he goes on to say, God, he turns to where he feels the breath of violent killers. 
And he says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. But he's not just angry at somebody. He's standing up for this holy God. He says, it, it, is, it offends you and it offends me. I pray for righteousness. It's kind of an Old Testament version of the Lord's Prayer that thy kingdom come. And I'm, I finish with these last two verses. He goes through all of this to expose himself to Almighty God and say, I am progressing to an invitation, Yahweh. I am asking you, I am throwing open the doors emotionally and mentally to you that you are so great that I throw open the doors willingly. God, investigate me more. Investigate me more for what reason? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so what do we do with this knowledge? All isms are wasms. Any ism that our culture produces, it's a wasm. How do you want to, how do you want us understand what comes and goes in this world is just that, it's a wasm. Only God endures. Give up the illusion of control in your life. Don't live short-sighted like the world. In the descriptions of the final judgment, we know that God is the one who's going to be there. And there's no escaping. But that's a good thing. Because we know that the condition of this world is not going to last forever. Amen.